to another Jew and Gentile podcast. I am your host, Chris Katolka, and with me is none other than the Jewish sage himself, the one and only Mr. Steve Herzig. Oi, Steve, we're missing... Zvia from last week. I gotta look over at this. I now. know, I know. My COVID is over. I'm back in the chair. You're I feel back, bad baby. for you. I feel bad for you. Zvia. It, was, it was a real letdown. Well, I'm glad you're back, Steve. I'm glad you're healthy. Sure, Allison, you, you say that. Uh, sure, you say that. hundred uh, percent. You and Zvia could have gone on the road. We could have left the the Jewish and the Gentile podcast. <laughs> That's right. Hold on. Here we go. No, I'm glad to have you back. We need we needed uh, your presence, even though your presence was definitely felt in the last podcast when you did it from home. So doing it from home isn't the same. Somehow you still found a way to be louder than Zvia, who was sitting right across from of me. Of course. <laughs> no problem. Even with COVID, I was louder. A hundred percent. Well, listen, Steve and I are actually going to crack open lunch right now, Steve. That's so, right. All right. So, Steve, um, last night I was. Why are we cracking over lunch? We're cracking open our lunch here, and if you're watching on YouTube, we've got... How did you get a pickle, and I didn't get a you pickle? You should have a pickle in there. I got bupkis. Oh, look at that. Look okay. at that. They like you better at Goldie's than me. Well, we went to Gold... I went to Goldie's this morning because last night, Steve, uh, I saw on the news um, that protesters, pro-Palestinian protesters, were outside of Goldie's, which is owned by Michael Solomonov, who is an Israeli the Jew. High, very high-rated uh, chef. Oh, the guy is like a James Beard award-winning chef. He's famous around the world. You can't even get a spot in his his uh, flagship well, then how'd restaurant. You, how'd you wrestle this? Well, this is his, uh, you know, for this the people. This is his schmata thing, yeah, right? right? His little nothing. This is for, you know, he makes donuts. It's a, like yeah. that kind of stuff. This, this is for <laughs> the peons of the world. That's right. I've been to his one restaurant, Zahab. Of course you have. I've gotten bupkis. It's very hard to get in. I had It's almost like you have to get tickets or something like that. It's uh, harder to get into Zahav than it is to get to an Eagles game or something. So anyway, uh here we are with our salads because last night this was going on, Steve, and I'll air this for our listeners right now. Outside of Goldie's in Philadelphia, Pal- pro-Palestinian protesters were chanting this. It's called Meshuggah. It, oh, yeah. Meshuggah. Meshuggah. It's crazy. Well, let's talk about it. You Let's dig in and eat, Steve. I heard your stomach growling. I've got to make sure that doesn't right. get picked up I'm, on I'm, the... on the. Uh, uh, look at that's this. That's a falafel. This is uh, a falafel salad. Falafels are great. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So, oh, we're killing our audience here, Chris. Because we're eating in front of them. That's right. Well, we shouldn't do that. I would like to say to our, our, our people who live in the Philadelphia area, you should go down to Goldie's or one of his many restaurants to show support to Michael Solomonov because all he did was be Jewish. All he did was run an American business. Very proud American, very proud Israeli, but they targeted him. Translate what they were saying. Some, some of our older listeners might have difficulty, especially as it's run through secondhand. What were they chanting? They were chanting, um, Goldie's, Goldie's, you can't hide. We charge you with genocide. So he's blaming. So, so they're blaming the restaurant, who's <laughs> and the owner and the, oh, and the owner 
for killing people. That's right. Exactly. When he has nothing to do with it, he is an Israeli. He is an American. He does make amazing food, but I don't think he's the target audience for uh, taking out their their whatever feelings they have about what's going on with the Palestinians. And it just goes to show, Steve, I say this over and over again, and I've heard you say it too, anti-Zionism, the hatred of Israel, always bleeds over to anti-Semitism. They tar- always. That's anti-Semitism. They targeted a Jewish-owned business and said, we're targeting you because we're blaming you for what's going on in Gaza right now. Well, Chris, there's evidence all around the world uh, I, w- I was reading about France, and I was reading about London, the Jewish people there. Uh, by the way, France has the most, uh, the, the largest number of Jewish people in Europe, 500,000 people. France also has 6 million Muslims as well. And people in France, the Jewish people in France, feel as though they can't wear a yarmulke, Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, there's instructions going on in London and in France, particularly in Paris and London, that when if you're Orthodox, take your yarmulke off before you cross the street because they're worried about what cars will do. Run them over. Exactly. Exactly. Which is a form of terrorism they used in Israel. And so even if that's even if that's perceived and not in reality, in other words, that has not happened yet. They are fearful of it happening, and in Paris and London, there never was that kind of fear before. It mm-hmm. was a safe haven for the Jewish people, which we're now finding as things continue to uh, go on since October 7th, Jewish people's only safe place, and it will become more apparent, is in Israel. 100%, the only place they can defend themselves. And to think, too, is... Uh, the, my my spirit animal behind me, Theodore Herzl. That's right. That is where he found the the um, vision in France was the vision to to create a Jewish state. What goes around comes around. That's right. Because right? they were screaming death to the Jews during the Dreyfus affair, and he in goes Paris. in Paris, and he's going, I, "What what is this?" He saw the Holocaust coming. He did uh, fifty he- years or forty years before it even happened, um, and so uh, again, we're seeing this. This nineteen, you keep saying nineteen thirty three. A lot of people go to nineteen thirty eight or or whatever. No, nineteen thirty three was when Adolf Hitler got into office through a democratic process. You could even trace it to nineteen thirty. That's when the brown shirts he had already raised them up. They were beginning to do all kinds of things, but the laws began to be passed right after he became chancellor in nineteen thirty three. So do you see that you're saying there are similarities? Are there differences from what you see in 1933? Do you think there's a more of an awareness or do you think uh, we continue to kick the can down the road? The difference is that it was confined to Germany. There wasn't world. There has always been anti-Semitism. But, Chris, since October 7th, there is allegiances being established in France, Paris, London, in America, on our college campuses, there's a uniting of anti-Semitism uh, that is global. Yeah, uh, People were outraged. Maybe they didn't do anything about it in Germany. It was isolated in Germany. And so you didn't see other countries uh, coming to in, in mass to the defense of the Jewish peoples. There was denial. There were all kinds of things. But now there's... look. You just played what's happening in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Yeah, right across the it's bridge. It's no different than what could go on in Gaza. Yeah. No different 
in the West Bank, Judea, Samaria, as controlled by the Palestinian Authority. That's they would be Lonsmen. Oh yeah, brothers, sisters. We call the same thing. Mm-hmm. It, that's that's a huge difference, Chris. It's not isolated. It's now worldwide. Well, and this is one of the reasons I took a trip over this morning to show support. I was telling Steve I did let the. That was just. There were three people there at opening at 11 a.m. in Goldie's, and um, I could see the look on the young girl's face who was manning the the uh, cash register. You could tell anybody that walked in that door gave her a little bit of you know a fear. You know they didn't she didn't know what to expect. Um, she managed herself very well, but I could look you know when she'd see somebody walking in, she'd kind of you know well this just happened. We're taping or we're recording on Monday. And this happened last night. And so you got in when it opened. It's as fresh as it could be. The employees aren't going to know. They know what happened. I'm sure they knew what happened last night. She had a right to be fearful. Oh, yeah, 100%. And that's why we wanted to go there and show support. The governor of the state of Pennsylvania, who happens to be Jewish himself, is a friend of the owner. Yep. uh, And is outraged at what happened. Chris he should be outraged if it was. I know he's a friend of. Everyone wants to be friends with Michael Solomonov in Philadelphia. It doesn't matter what biz, Jewish business it is. Hundred percent. You should have that. That all of America should be very, very worried right now by what they're seeing happening. But Chris, you know what's interesting? Look, we're a small group comparatively. The Friends of Israel is a worldwide Christian agency. Uh, we've established because we are indeed the Friends of Israel. But if you go back to Israel My Glory, which we produce Israel My Glory and have since 1942, if you go back to any issue in the 80s, in the 90s, in the 2000 uh, to 2010, 2010 to 2020, and then recently, there have always been articles written. We're not prophets, but we talk about anti-Semitism and what its roots are, and what its implications are, and how it can affect a country where the Jewish people are. So I ask you, Chris, are we surprised? Are we surprised? I don't think we're surprised, but I will say, because you, I think you tapped into the, the issue, is that in the 1950s and 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s, and even the early 2000s when Israel My Glory was being written and we were highlighting anti-Semitism, I think you had you you hit the nail on the head. Today, there's social media. And today, you don't need, you, you know, what happens in Indonesia is felt here today because we see it. What happens in Philadelphia uh, made international news overnight and everybody sees it and hears it. It was a headline in the New York Post That's this a, morning. Yeah. Uh, and it's in Philadelphia. This morning on Fox and Friends, it, it, it they had highlighted Goldie's in Philadelphia. But that's where I—that's uh, what you were talking about is where it's more of a global anti-Semitism. All of that anti-Semitism, that hatred of the Jewish people it, that maybe we didn't see, you know, it, it was in the classrooms and we didn't hear what the professors were saying. Well, now it's all out loud. And I, people are changing their minds about sending their kids to these— elite universities because of the garbage that's being taught, you know, oh, that's what you're teaching my kids and I'm spending 60,000 a year. Or the same thing could be said for what's going on in certain uh, European countries. All of a sudden, what was kind of like, oh, we know that there's anti-Semitism. It's all of a sudden come roaring to the top since October the 7th, bubbling as fast as possible, almost overheating because of the war. And Israel defends itself 
and then anti-Semitism appears. The bubbling effect that you're talking about, you, you, none of us are surprised at Friends of Israel, but we are, I'll just speak for myself, we're not surprised, but we're shocked at how fast it's happened. Mm-hmm. At least I am. I'm shocked because, and it is, it's easy to explain, it's because of s- social media, but it's it comes, boom, right, right up and easily seen. And by the way, that effect also affects believers who read their Bibles, Bible-believing Christians. So that bubbling effect that brings negativity through anti-Semitism, we have found at Friends of Israel, to God's glory, that that bubbling effect has awakened much of the evangelical Bible-believing Christians who are looking for ways to help, to counter this terrible, awful anti-Semitism. And in the articles that we read about uh, Goldie's, there's calls for people to go and buy food. Done. And, and, and it will happen. It, it's happening. And here at Friends of Israel, I was just in Connecticut and had a uh, one of the leaders of the church said, I've been looking for a way to help Israel. And he said, to be honest, what took place October 7th really awakened me. And he said, I trust Friends of Israel. And so I want to give to Israel through Friends of Israel. That's happened countless yep. times with our constituents. And so, look, the darker the night, the more glorious the sunrise. The worse the anti-Semitism gets, God counters all the time, and there are believers standing with Israel. We thank God for them. A hundred percent. Now, listen, Steve's been talking, and he should be eating. I want to be like your mother. Eat, Steve. (laughs) Eat. I got my mouth full, but Chris, what a segue to what we're talking about, to our study which we didn't really plan it this way. We we don't plan anything. <laughs> so we didn't People, plan it. We this joke way. about our seven listeners and we love our seven listeners, but we're not joking when we say we don't we don't plan much here. We do not plan it just much. Just comes right from the but, heart. But the passage that we're in, uh, Daniel chapter eight, we briefly covered it with Zvia uh, here last week in Daniel chapter seven. But Chris, uh, this Thursday uh, is Hanukkah, the festival of lights. And how did Hanukkah come about? It actually was prophesied. It was prophesied through the book of Daniel. Daniel had a visitor who explained this dream that Daniel had with these horrible animals, chapter 7. But particularly, he goes on to talk about this goat and a ram in chapter 8, and actually speaks about the length of time that Israel will be persecuted, 2,300 days. And Chris, it goes exactly the way it was prophesied. Those 2,300 days end when uh, the Jewish people are able to respond to the terrible, vicious anti-Semitism that Antiochus Epiphanes unleashes. And Chris, as we celebrate, no, we, look at you got your menorah. I got my menorah. You got a new menorah, c- courtesy of Amazon. My my wife Alice, who is on Amazon, one click. That's her philosophy. Just one click, and are you, boom. Are you talking about at our house? Wait, are you talking about shopping? One click, one click, or one click to get that menorah going? Well, this is two clicks to get it going, but one click to buy it. At least for my wife Alice. So All right. you one click goes like this. You turn it on. And then there's a little button. And so on the first day of Hanukkah, there's the first day. And we haven't even had it yet. But 
each day there's a different notice we this is easy no mess no fuss oh big time uh, uh my sister has one of these she told me and they live in an apartment where there's this group of uh of folks and you're they in order to live in the apartment you're not allowed to burn candles because of fire laws so this is what they have for Hanukkah. I'm watching it light up here. It's amazing. So watch, but Chris, after the eighth day, when the eighth day is lit, then things get interesting. <laughs> bada boom, bada bing. But that's not my favorite. I spoke in Connecticut on on Hanukkah, a little bit about Hanukkah, and then October 7th. But this is the one, all during my message, here's what I had them watch. <laughs> Look at that. That is a celebration right that there. That is a celebration. And... You know, I read for them, when we talk about prophecy, Chris, I read for them John chapter 10. And and here's how it's tied together. Here in Daniel chapter 8, we're told about this Antiochus Epiphanes who will come, the little horn, uh, and how he's going to grow bigger, and he's going to uh, persecute the Jewish people. Uh, They're defeated through the Maccabees. And then I read them John chapter 10, the only place... Uh, in the Bible, our our Bible being Christian Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, uh, since it was an intertestamental event, it's obviously not in the Older Testament. It's not in the Jewish scriptures, but it's in the Jewish scriptures New Testament. John wrote about it, and Jesus celebrated the Feast of Dedication. Mm-hmm. Chris, if there were, and I told them in Connecticut, and I've said it, you said it, all our people who are around the world when we teach Hanukkah, if Hanukkah never happened, Jesus would not be here. There'd be no Christmas. There'd be no Christmas. All right, now and listen. that's significant. I want you to eat a little bit. I'm going to take over here. I'm going to do the heavy lifting for a moment. Okay. And here's the thing. Uh, before we get into Daniel, uh, chapter, we're going to wrap up chapter 7. We'll, we'll highlight chapter 7 again and move into chapter 8. Before we do that, I just want to remind you that the Jew and Gentile podcast is sponsored by FOI Equip. And we've got two great events coming up. Number one, this Thursday night, if you want to pray for Israel, then please, uh, you need to go to foiequip.org, and there you can register. We're going to have a night of prayer for the nation of Israel, for the people of Israel, for the Jewish people. I And, and I think it's going to be it's gonna be more than just praying for Israel. Again, we need to be praying for Jewish people all around the world who are suffering under the hand of anti-Semitism because of what's going on uh, in the war between Israel and Hamas. Uh, And so if you want to pray, it will be structured, it will be organized. I'd like you to come on out, foiequip.org, December 7th, starting 7.30 Eastern Time. We'd love to see you. We'd love to be able to pray with you and pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Uh, And then the following week on Thursday, uh, 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 I believe December 16th, uh, no, no, wait, I'm sorry, December 14th, uh, at 7.30 p.m. I'm going to be teaching on Christmas, Steve, uh, and the significance of Bethlehem. So if you've not registered for that class yet, you can still go to foiequip.org and register for my class on Bethlehem. But here's the deal. That's our last class of the year, Steve. That's it. We've done, we've done uh, 12 months of classes with FOI Equip. We've had several thousand people register online to watch our courses. We've got several thousand people that have watched them on, on, on demand on YouTube. And so we've got a great thing that's uh, that uh, uh, F, through FOI Equip to learn the Bible from a Jewish perspective. And that's what funds, what helps fund the Jew and Gentile podcast. So anyway. Let's, let's not forget Mug on a Mug. And Mug on a Mug. Which helps fund Equip. If I, you want to donate $10, we'd like more. 
but $10 will get you the mug and happy to do so. We do it. We have, I think we have about 60 more mugs, Chris. Oh yeah. We've, we've got plenty of mugs to give away a 10, a minimum of $10 donation. will get you a mug by going to go foi.org forward slash mug. We've got that link in our show notes. Also, Hey, just, just a quick reminder, just this past uh, week, our interns that FOI equip sponsors. That's the thing. They this is when when people give to get a, get a mug. This is what their money goes toward. Their money goes to help, uh, like our internship program. We have six interns that are serving in Canada and the United States. They all met together in Chicago and they were connecting with local churches about the importance of Israel and the Jewish people. Handing out Hanukkah baskets to their Jewish to Jewish friends in Chicago. Connecting, uh, you know, uh, the Christian community to the Jewish community. Helping and volunteering in synagogues to show the love of Jesus, especially during this season and during this difficult time. So when you give, you're actually helping sponsor. Our equip uh, FOI equip internship program and many other things. So be sure to go to gofoi.org forward slash mug and get your mug on a mug. That's me and Steve's face on there. And uh, sorry about that. Yeah, we're <laughs> shocky in the morning. <laughs> but but Chris, this year we did five hundred baskets, or or should I say boxes, Hanukkah boxes, uh, which means that all across the country we've distributed five. Hundred or are distributing right now in in present tense uh, for the Hanukkah season, and we do so as an expression of unconditional love to our Jewish friends. And Chris, we find the reaction we get from those who are receiving these boxes is incredible. I was just talking with one of our people who works in accounting, and he was telling me that he had given a, a Hanukkah box the past two years to a, a friend of his, and she told him, I don't want the box anymore, but I value your friendship. She said, I, 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 don't, I don't want the box. I'm so thankful that you have given it to me and expressed that love. And Chris, so he said, could we talk about this? Well, Chris, they met for five hours. Five hours. Wow. Uh, he interacted with her and her husband as well. Oh, she's a Jewish gal who didn't want the Hanukkah box and married to a conservative Baptist husband. <laughs> what a combination. <laughs> and uh, as Andrew was talking to me about the conversation, he said, you know what? The main thing is still the main thing, and that's our friendship. And we were able to talk back and forth where she would say to him, I know you don't believe this way, but here's what I say. And he would say, I know you don't believe this way, but here's what I'm saying. It's a great, it was a great conversation piece, and it was a way for them to bridge their differences by talking. And just on a secular human way, isn't that amazing? Yeah, and then just to be able to share with one another, talk with one another freely, and walk away friends. A hundred percent. And then what happens is truth is shared, you know. From the Friends of Israel perspective, we're able to share our our faith in in doing that. Uh, I, you know, a lot of people talk about the fact that we proselytize. We don't proselytize. We do see. not proselytize. Now, some Christians might be go, "Wait a minute, what do you mean you don't proselytize?" That's not our job to convert that people. Proselytizing is a negative Jewish word because in in Jewish history, proselytize means forced conversions. Proselytize means you are making the person through force or economic pressure mm -hmm. or political pressure. You're making them succumb to your belief. We share our, our message all the time. 
Chris, the best line I've ever heard from a Gentile, the best line I've ever heard is when uh, a believer meets a Jewish person and they say this, it's so great to meet you. One day I met a Jewish man that changed my life. From the time I met him, I've never been the same. And every Jewish person I meet, I just want to say thank you. And Chris, there are two questions that come. Uh, this, by the way, I don't get the credit for it, comes from Elwood McQuaid, uh, who, by the way, is 93 years old, Chris, doing well. Uh, but he always, he told me, two reactions I get, two, two questions I always get when I say a Jewish man changed my life. First question, what did he say? Oh, no, who is he? Sorry. Mm -hmm. Who is he? Oh, his name is Jesus. And he said about 70% of the people that I've shared that with, they say, thank you very much, and they leave. <laughs> That's it. They, they get their one question answered. The second question for the 30% who stay around is, what did he say? And uh, Elwood always said, I got to share two-minute testimonial as to how God changed my life. Mm. And that's really what we're trying to do with the boxes that we give for Hanukkah. Unconditional love. Jesus showed us unconditional love. Giving to them with joy. Jesus gave to us with joy. And then they receive it, the, the box, with joy. And we hope people receive the message with joy as Nobody, well. you know, I was thinking about your testimony too as a uh, coming from the an orthodox Jewish background. Nobody forced you all that no, locks and bagel. It, it was did just, wonders. It just was locks and bagels. You showed up to a Bible study cuz you were hungry and you, they promised you we're not going to we're not going to force any, you know, we're not do, just come and listen. And you listen I, I guess I always thank the unsourced people who gave what probably amounted in 1975 to $100 worth of locks that I ate uh, and and the $10 worth of bagels that I ate uh, that night. Somebody paid for that, and they did so willingly without any, any forced reaction at all. And for me, it was wonderful, and we want to extend that same kind of giving. Well, that's why we're going to now move to Daniel uh, Steve, we we you know we're wrapping up Daniel seven. I just want to highlight this one last thing. Such an important messianic chapter, Steve, in Daniel chapter seven. The Son of Man, who to whom all authority and power and dominion is given, and so um, Daniel chapter seven becomes very important for the New Testament, especially the Gospels, because Jesus's favorite title for himself throughout the Gospels, it's not Son of God. It's not Messiah. It's not uh, Christ. It's not um, Lord of Lords. He doesn't, you know, all these amazing titles. And what does Jesus call himself or allude to? The one that he, uh, the title he gives himself all the time is Son of Man, which comes from Daniel chapter 7, which shows that, number one, I think he's trying to say, I identify with who you are. I am, I've become a son of Adam, essentially. I'm a, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a human. I'm both fully God and fully man. And so he's identifying with our humanity. And yet at the same time in Daniel chapter 7, there's that very important passage that shows this human in Daniel 7, the son of man, but he's riding on clouds and he's given all dominion, power, and glory from God. And he's not singed. He's not, he's not consumed by God's holiness. He's able to enter right into his presence. And so, uh, again, these divine qualities. So Jesus is both God and both man, but he used, he loves to use that title son of man to show both his humanity and yet at the same time, his divinity and at the same time, his power and authority over everything. So that's uh, amazing to me. And all that routes back 
to Daniel chapter 7, but now we're going to move to Daniel chapter 8, which is very fascinating, especially as we think about our uh, our Hanukkah season that's approaching, uh, Steve. A hundred percent, Chris. And as, as we think of Daniel chapter 8, we're still going back to the time when Daniel was with Nebuchadnezzar. It's, it's not chronological. The chapters aren't chronological. So this had to happen. So chapter 7 talks about the four powers, the four Gentile powers or nations that come about. And in fact, at the end of chapter 7, it says, this is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. And now he's going to then report in the third year of the reign, reign of uh, King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. I saw in the vision and so happened while I was looking, I was in Shushan and in the province of Elam. So here he is, he's getting another vision, another uh, uh, aspect that's actually going to amplify the third world power, Greece. And so, Chris, we're confronted with a ram and a goat. Mm. Why don't you tell us about the ram and the goat and what happens there? Well, yeah, because it goes on and it says this. It says uh, that he see in Elam in the vision, I was beside uh, Ulai Canal. I looked up and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal and the horns were long. So th- there are people who believe that this is ultimately Persia. Uh, and beginning to fade off the scene. Is that right, ultimately? Ultimately, this is Persia, and uh, the the goat, which doesn't touch the ground, nope. is going to be Greece. Greece. Alexander, who starts off at 22 years old, Chris. I know. He's 22 years old. He has less resources than media Persia. He has less of an army, and he's able to defeat them. He dies at 32 years old. In control of the world. So that's how fast he was able. 11,000 square miles he was able to uh, to defeat. It, it, it's amazing. Well, and people don't realize this, too. It's not He didn't just appear out of nowhere. He It was the son of a, a, a king, Philip of Macedonia. And in that time, the Greek, the Greek city-states were all very disorganized. And uh, they, they would war with one another often. And they had different cultures and all this. And it was a Macedonian. It was, was Philip dies. Uh, Alexander, his son, takes power, and he unifies the Greek city states, and he unifies them under this theme that they all agreed on: we hate Persia. That was it. We hate Persia. We don't like their territorial expansion. We don't like the way that we're under their authority. Uh, and Alexander had the the chutzpah to think he could defeat the largest empire in the world. And he did. And it happened very rapidly. That's why he's this, this, it's hovering and above. And Daniel is prophesying that it will happen. Yeah. Remember, Daniel is ri- written before this actually happens. That's what's so amazing. That's what prophecy is all about. So Alexander is able to conquer the Medes and the Persians, uh, but he dies. And Chris, what happens to this goat? This goat changes. Yep. And I'll, I'll read it to you really quick because it says, I watched and the ram as it charged toward the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it and none could rescue it from its power. It did just as it pleased and became great. That's Alexander the Great. 
As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth. Oh, this is Alexander the Great. Without touching the ground, it came toward the two-horned ram, and I had seen suddenly beside the canal, and it charged at it in great rage. I saw it attack the ram uh, uh, ferociously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. The goat became very great, and at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off. That's Alexander the Great. And in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. And we might have mentioned this last week, too. What happens is Alexander the Great does not have a successor to his throne, no heir to his so young. And he had been for 10 years conquering the world. He went from Greece all the way over to the Indus Valley, which is near India, uh, and conquered all those lands. Um, and, uh, you know, you have to give credit to Alexander the Great, too, Steve, because he didn't just go conquer lands. He did something that no other empire had done before, which was unify a people through its culture. Um, th that's where we get the term Hellenization from. Um, so there are even Jewish people who become Hellenized. Lots of them. Lots of them. They become Hellenized. They begin hey, we wrote the book on assimilation. <laughs> we love assimilation. <laughs> it's always prettier on the other side, always, you know? Always, always. Well, Alexander the Great did something that, that the Persians didn't do and the Babylonians didn't do, and that was that they spread their language. And all of a sudden, everybody starts writing in Greek. And reading in Greek, and the culture started to spread. And so you'll begin to see architecture, Greek architecture, appear in some of the most interesting places in the Middle East. There's Greek architecture in Israel. There's Greek architecture as far as Iraq and Iran. There's Greek architecture all over the place because they planted these major cities and uh, and and built them and built Greek infrastructure and culture right into these cities that would have nothing to do with Greek culture uh, hundreds of miles away. Even down in Egypt, they built a city named after Alexander called Alexandria, and that is where that great library was, where all of the books were co collected. And that's where Jewish people, some of them, wrote extra-biblical Writings that are still used today by the rabbis. A hundred percent. Alexandria became a place of intellect and knowledge. But think about that. That's Egypt. That's so far. It's on the other side of the Mediterranean from Greece. But you can see the influence that Alexander has as he's going from place to place. But now all of a sudden he dies and this Chris, empire split Chris, up. We, we're reading from the Most High God, Reynolds Showers, who comments on this and I think quite helpful uh, for us. As soon as the goat became exceedingly powerful... The large horn between its eyes was broken. Four other horns rose up to replace it. Greek, Greece had hardly reached the peak of its power when Alexander the Great died at the age of 32 in 323 B.C. Four of the generals divided his kingdom among, them, among themselves. Ptolemy took Egypt, Cyrene, Cyprus, Palestine, and several cities. Seleucus possessed Syria, Babylon, Asia Minor, and the Iranian Plateau. Lysimachus controlled Thrace and Western Asia Minor, and Cassander ruled Macedonia and Greece proper. So, Chris, what's going to happen in Chapter 8 is the Seleucus part that becomes where the focus is. As God uses Daniel, reveals this dream to him, yes, it's four generals come, but it's the Seleucids where Antiochus comes from. He's actually the eighth king that comes 
from the Seleucids, and it's him that is prophesied during chapter 8. And this becomes a part of the story of Hanukkah. So we're, um, we're, This is the whole story through here. And it, the, the important thing, I always like, uh, I'm actually going up to Word of Life in the next few hours. I'm going to start driving up there because tomorrow I start teaching about intertestamental history. And I'm going to be Perfect teach- timing for you too. I'm going to be teaching about this. And, you know, one of the things that, that I always like to highlight to the students is that this, it's amazing that this is all centered, this like Daniel chapter eight, all of it is centered with Israel as the center point, centerpiece. Because Ezekiel 5.5. Five, exactly. The center of the earth. Jerusalem is the center of the earth. And what's interesting is that you see Daniel writing from a perspective of what's going on around, as, as it's called here, the beautiful land around Israel. And there are kings to the north of Israel. Those are the Seleucids. Those are that, that come from one of uh, the generals of, of uh, Alexander. And the kings to the south who are ruling down in Egypt, that's the Ptolemies uh, and the Ptolemaic dynasty. Both are Greek, but they're just different areas. One is a Greek Syrian who's up in Damascus, and the other one is down in Egypt, and he's ruling down there. And they even would call him Pharaoh oftentimes. But Daniel's going to show us what's going to happen in the in the in between with Israel at the center point. That's Squeezed why squeezed from two from two sides. It should be noted too, Steve, that you know why why would Ptolemy and Seleucid be fighting over this land? You'd think they go, ah, let's you have that. I'll take this. It's all very nice. All on the Mediterranean coast. We're all living a great life. It's a bridge, baby. It's a bridge. It's a bridge. You control Israel. We you control the world. It was the bridge that connected Egypt to to Europe and Egypt to Persia and Egypt to all the other places in the world. You wanted to go north from Egypt, you had to go through Israel. South, Africa, down. Europe, and Asia, all bridged through Israel. That's right. So you control that land, you control international trade. So they fought over this. Now, the Ptolemies, like you had mentioned, had control of it uh, for about 100 years. And then in 200 BC, that's when Ale- uh, Antiochus III is able to defeat the Ptolemies, and he takes control of Israel. And that happens actually at a very interesting place, and we visit that place when we take tours to Israel. It happens in Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus says, ultimately, uh, um, uh, this is my church, and uh, Satan will not prevail against it, hell will not prevail against it. Um, And uh, it's a great saying from Jesus, but all of those events that were taking place in Caesarea Philippi go back to this moment when these two warring kingdoms, the kingdoms to the north and the kingdoms to the south, are fighting against one another, and it happens right in Caesarea Philippi, where it goes and transitions hands back up to the north. And now this becomes important, because Antiochus III, who actually the Jewish people liked, he they liked him because they were overtaxed by the south, they didn't like all the things that were going on, they felt like they were a part of a state uh, that was controlling them, and Antiochus III said, ah, lower taxes, I'll be good to you, I love the Jewish Sigazun. people. That's Live right. and be well. <laughs> well, then he passes away, and his son Antiochus IV takes control, Antiochus Epiphanes. And w- when Antiochus takes control, he, he wants to dominate that area. And the way he felt he needed to dominate was to assimilate all the Jews, to Hellenize all of them. He would have been fine with them just quote, converting to Hellenism, to stop being Jewish, stop with your circumcision, stop with your Torah, 
stop with your temple worship. That, But they rebelled against that, so he had no problem killing them as well. And either way, Chris, this is where satanic influence, if the Jewish people would have all assimilated, it would have been enough yep. to pervert the seed. It would have polluted the, the, the seed. It would have not, Christ would have never come. The Messiah has to come to his people and his land. It has to be both at the same time. And so Hanukkah is celebrated because there's a family. There's a family that says, you know what? We're not, there are some of our people who are Hellenized. Uh, and Chris, when they went around with uh, pork, pork chops, uh, to all kinds of cities asking the leadership to, uh, to compromise in front of their people, the Maccabee family refused to do so. In fact, uh, the story is that in Modin, a Jewish leader was going to eat the pork. One hundred percent, going to eat. He it. was ready to make a ham sandwich. And many of our many of our people have no problem with baby backs, but at this particular time, it was not going to happen. And uh, Mattathias Maccabee killed his fellow Jewish person. His sons rose up with him. It was the first guerrilla attack. They attacked the uh, garrison that was in Modine, fled to the mountains, and Chris for the next three years. There was guerrilla warfare. And Daniel says that during this period, there's only 2,300 days. 2,300 days, and then it's going to be over. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly, you can, uh, in fact, Rennie Showers in his book takes those 2,300 days, gives you the dates of them, and it ended just the way Daniel predicted. Yep. It To me, as as Jewish people celebrate Hanukkah, I, Chris, I never heard about that growing up. I heard about the story of Hanukkah. I knew about Antiochus Epiphanes. I knew what he was saying we should do, and I knew we should never compromise and always be proud of being Jewish. And that's what Hanukkah is about. But I wish somebody would have told me, hey, you know, Daniel talked about this. Mm -hmm. Daniel saw this. He saw it before there even was the second power. It, the second power was just about to come onto the scene, and he saw all of it. That's that would change. That would have, from a human point of view, changed my perspective. Look at how the scriptures are exactly correct. Fast Look, forward till I'm 22, and I read Isaiah 53, and it's the same thing. Only now, instead of talking about a nation and a and a specific event, it talks about a person and how he's born and how he dies. Mm-hmm. You know it. it it's so detailed that there are some scholars that say, oh, see, this is late Second Temple literature. This is history, not prophecy. Yeah, they're reading backwards. So Daniel's not Daniel. It's some Jewish guy writing probably from the land or whatever, uh, probably a Hasmonean of some sort, um, and writing backwards into history and not forward into history. Um, and we just don't—there's plenty of evidence to show Daniel was writing from this time— uh, we have good evidence for that, and so we be- we believe here at Friends of Israel, this is prophecy. This is Daniel able to look and to see with great detail what was coming for the Jewish people at this time. And Steve makes it very, very clear, is that what Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV, was attempting to do was to eradicate Jewish culture and Jewish customs. It, it, they got rid of circumcision. They got rid of, he got rid of Torah. He said, you can't read the Torah. You can't honor Shabbat. Anything that identified you as a Jewish person 
you had to get rid of that and you had to become Greek. And in doing so, Antiochus defiles the temple. But Steve, I want to highlight this too, is that you're right. The Maccabees come, they defeat the Greeks, uh, they rededicate. That's why Jesus celebrates the Feast of Dedication in John chapter 10. He's remembering what happened in 165 BC. He's looking back only about 160 100 and what 190 years 190 years looking back in time and saying there was a time where our people were uh were were being attacked and we we were able to defeat the enemies that were trying to get rid of our Jewishness and then we rededicated the temple to the Lord and that's the feast of dedication but it would be in 142 BC where Simon the last son of Mattathias that one that you talked about would actually make a deal with the king to the north and find sovereignty for the Jewish people for a second time. There's only been three times that Jewish people have had sovereignty in the land of Israel. That happened during, of course, the Davidic reign, the Solomonic reigns, the Saul, you know, that that period of time when, when the Jewish people, the Israelites were in the land of Israel. And then they were kicked out and went to Babylon. Then they disappeared. There's no control over the land. Then in 142 BC, after Hanukkah, the Jewish people take control of the land again. It's called the Second Commonwealth under the under the auspices of the Hasmoneans. That's what they were called. It's the family connected to Mattathias who stood up against the Greeks. And then what happens? Then after about 100 years, they lose control of that. It turns it back into the hands of the Romans. That's what Jesus is born into. But you have to think about it. The Jewish people... They knew what freedom tasted like because it happened just about 100 years prior to the coming of Jesus. There was this freedom that they had, and they knew about it. So when they celebrated Hanukkah during the days of Jesus, it was a liberty. It was freedom from the oppressors of Rome. And then finally, in 1948, you know, just think about this in history for our listeners. Davidic period, you know, that time of the kings. Then you move to 142 B.C., another commonwealth, and then 1948, today, the modern state of Israel is the third commonwealth of sovereignty, Jewish sovereignty over the land. It's amazing to think about that, Steve, when you see it happen. It only has happened three times throughout the course of history. And during all of its history since then, the day after they proclaimed independence, five nations attacked them. Yep. Uh, and except for spurts, the first spurt was uh, uh, our own country, uh, Harry Truman, recognizing the country, but hardly anybody helped them, and they still won. Uh, you take them all the way through their history. It always seems they're on the precipice of destruction, uh, and they come back. And the question is how and why. And when we think about it, Chris, as we talk about Chapter 8 and Hanukkah, isn't it interesting? We already talked about Goldies. So here in Philadelphia area, Hundreds of people start hurling dispersions upon uh, an Israeli chef uh, and and saying all kinds of negative things about the Jewish people. But, Chris, we have other news items that we're going to talk about that are just as alarming. And, and they are now happening in a country that was called by my grandparents the Golden Medina, the Golden Land. The golden land, Chris, is being tarnished, mm -hmm. and it's slowly ebbing away, not far behind France, not far behind England, and it's it's not looking good. No. 
I think it would be a good time for us to move to the news, Steve. I agree. Um, we'll pick up with Daniel chapter 8 next week. And by the way, next week, I'll be bringing, I brought my menorah, but Chris, did I get some brand new dreidels? Oh, you got new stuff. Wait till you see the new dreidels. Is it a one-click dreidel? One is a one-click. Actually, you wind it up, you click it, and lights, music, it's amazing. That's awesome. The other ones are one spin dreidels, which you have to turn on a uh, a switch, and it plays music and lights up. It's great during the evening when we celebrate Hanukkah. You're a party bringing, animal. You're I'm, a party I'm animal. I'm bringing it next week. You are a part. You bring the party. We bring Steve. the party. It's all for my wife. I bring Bupkis. <laughs> She's really good. All right. Well, we had already mentioned about Goldie's and Michael Solomonov, and that's yep. why Steve hasn't touched his salad. I don't know what he. I'll be doing it. Okay. After I'm, the, I'm over here noshing like that's crazy. Right, that's right. The next one, though, I want to highlight, Steve. This came across my uh, feed, my X feed, or formerly Twitter. And I was astonished by this. This actually is a response that I'm reading from the United Jewish Community of Virginia Peninsula, the UJC highlights, and it says this, a statement on the second Sunday's cancellation of the Hanukkah celebration. And what they're talking about is that they are calling out the Jewish Community of Virginia Peninsula is shocked and alarmed at Love Light Placemaking's decision to cancel a menorah lighting scheduled for the second Sunday's Art and Music Festival on December 10th in Williamsburg, claiming it did not want to appear to choose sides in the Israel-Hamas conflict. So this no is Hanukkah. a shanda. This, we, we had that Yiddish word a long time ago. Shanda, a shame. This is a shame. What they are doing, which is a normal part of the community, uh, happens in all kinds of cities where they have a public lighting of the menorah, they're canceling it, Chris. Yep. They're canceling it because they don't want to appear to favor one side or the other. Well, guess what? They just did. Yeah, 100%. You know, because I don't think Hamas has too many events that they're running here in the United States. <laughs> but the Jewish people have Hanukkah that they've been celebrating since they stepped foot in the United States. I was even, as I was picking up Goldie's this morning, uh, the uh, UPenn, which is the medical center in um, in Philadelphia, or had no, I'm sorry, not you, Penn Jefferson had a big menorah out, and I thought, good for them, you know. Here, th- it's yeah, it is a statement that you're supporting Israel and the Jewish people when you have a menorah out. It's that you're giving them the freedom to be able to worship. That's what Hanukkah is, and and yet here they are. They're saying, you know what? We don't really want to choose sides here. It's horrible, and I think these people should be called out because this is what you call anti-Semitism. It's connecting it to Israel. Well, Chris, here's what here's how the article concludes. The second Sunday's Art and Music Festival has been a meaningful and important community event that brings people together under a powerful message of unity, love, and light, excluding Jewish participation from a festival that should welcome everyone undermines its very message. We call on Love Light Placemaking to reconsider our request and engage in dialogue, educate themselves on the harmfulness of their decision, and reinstate the apolitical menorah ceremony at the event. <laughs> at, we do, too. Yep. At, it's, it's not politics. It's a normal thing that has gone on in Jewish communities around the United States for years. But, Chris, after that one... Then we have All right, this one. This, this one. This makes this menorah one look like uh, this, child. This play. article should have every woman who is against rape be 
angry, mm-hmm. super angry. And Chris, of all places, to their credit, CNN gets the credit because this was an interview with a CNN person. Which shocked them. I think you could hear it in the voice of the interviewer, Dana Bash, who was, was it says this in the, in the uh, JNS article. It says, uh, Dana Bash of CNN State of the Union repeatedly pressed the chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus on anti-Israel bias on the left. And she kept getting the same answer over and over again. And so, Steve, I actually have a piece of that clip. I'd like to play it for you really quick. Let's play it. Here we go. I want to ask you about uh, sexual violence. It's kind of remarkable that this issue hasn't gotten enough attention uh, globally. Widespread use of rape, uh, brutal rape, sexual violence against Israeli women by Hamas. I think we, we always talk about the impact of war on women in particular. I've condemned what Hamas has done. I've condemned Specifically all of women. the actions. Absolutely. The, the rape, the, of course, morally, I think we cannot say that one war crime deserves another. That is not what international That's humanitarian the, law there it says. Is, Chris. Yep. With, with respect, I was She's, just asking about the the women, and you turned it back to Israel. That's right. See, that's, if she nailed it. Dana Bash nailed it. She did, It's amazing. I'm shocked with that, but happy. Yep, no. Happily uh, shocked. Even a blind squirrel finds a nut sometimes. <laughs> and here is that moment, because I actually think it stuns people who, who, when you speak to an Israeli about what's going on, they don't just talk about the war that's happening in, in their backyard. They talk about civil, uh, you know, the clash of civilizations. And that's what's going on, right? You know, we're sitting there. Some as Americans, we can watch the news and say, "Oh, look at these Israelis and Palestinians are fighting again." And all I hear from Israelis over and over again is, "You don't get it. This is a clash of civilizations. These are two different mindsets, two different worldviews." And Americans, whether they like it or not, they have the same worldview that the majority of Israelis have: democracy, freedom, liberty. Uh, um, you know, the women's rights. Uh, all of these things that we take for granted over here, is, Israelis live that as well. They're like the West in the East. And that's why America calls them our greatest ally, because that's exactly what they are. They hold to the same ideals and values we have. But when you go to Hamas, as the as, as I've heard Israelis say, it's like you're going back to 1200 A.D. You know, you're going back to the medieval period, the way people think and act. It's It can be barbaric in the way that, of course, what happened on October 7th. But it's a clash of civilizations. And here is uh, this congresswoman who's trying to give some moral equivalency between the IDF, the Israel Defense Forces, and Hamas, Steve. And it's absolutely she's wearing it on her sleeve as to what she believes. And quite honestly, I don't think she wants to offend her constituent base. She's a progressive. She's the head of progressive caucus. But this is what the progressives are doing. This is the kind of language, the kind of angle that they're taking with Hamas. Well, Chris, you just outlined the danger here. She's bad enough. What she's saying is bad enough. But she is a representative of a area, a geography in the United States, in, in her case, in Washington. And so there are the majority of her people would agree with what she's saying. Yeah, she she said this back in July. Uh, she called Israel a racist state in July and then seemed to apologize before doubling down a few days later, told Bash that Israeli forces have killed 15,000 Palestinians, three quarters of whom are wi- women. This, Steve, actually, you know, a lot of people are hearing the numbers of Palestinians that are dying um, during the war. But here, <laughs> I, Israel came out with a great response. They said it took us three or four weeks 
to determine how many people died in a localized area uh, to get to that number 1,400. It took us, Israel, it took us three weeks to get 1,400, you know, the, the number. How are they getting numbers the moment a bomb happens? They're just throwing numbers out. Now, I'm, again, I don't want to claim. I don't know how they're getting the numbers. or, or uh, They're not verified. But they're not Chris. verified. And Israel has always verified their numbers. Uh, and that's because they care about the truth. It's it. We can't verify how many Palestinians have died, but we can verify based on historical evidence that the information we're getting from Hamas is questionable. It's questionable and unverifiable at this point. We're going to see what we've seen before, inflated numbers that eventually will be verified. But look, Chris, I've said it from the beginning. This isn't a baseball game or football game. Israel is trying to eliminate the cancer that is Hamas. And it's unfortunate part of the disease is for them to infiltrate and keep around them healthy, decent Palestinian people. And Israel has to get rid of the cancer, just like in a body, some some healthy cells are, are, are compromised. Mm -hmm. They're doing everything they can not to do that, and they should be. And that's why it's taken so long, Chris. They're not carpet bombing like they did in World War II. When uh, England carpet bombed Germany, do you know how many German citizens died? They weren't even they weren't Nazis. They weren't part of it. They had to submit. And what no one is talking about it, Chris, you know it's possible for this to end now. All Hamas has to do is surrender. Surrender. Just say it's over. We surrender. We're not going to do this anymore. Take us prisoner. We care about our fellow uh, citizens here in Gaza. And stop your bombing. We surrender. Wave the white flag. That's not happening, Chris. And as long as it doesn't happen, the guilt falls on Hamas. You know, um, it wasn't just this representative who was trying to make an, a moral equivalency between Hamas and Israel. But even the U.N., women, uh, like the women's rights um, uh, segment or whatever it is of the United Nations, that it took them eight weeks. UN, this is from December 2nd, 2023. UN Women, that's the department, finally condemns Hamas attacks, sexual violence on October 7th. It took that long. And it says this, the United Nations Entity for Gender Equality and the Empowerment of Women, or UN Women, has condemned the Hamas October massacre in, in a Friday statement nearly two months after the terrorist organization's brutal rampage of rape, murder, and kidnappings. And that's when they wrote, we unequivocally condemn the brutal attacks by Hamas on Israel. But they they took eight weeks to do that, which to me just shows that they had that same mentality, that progressive mentality. It's funny, when it comes to Jewish women, Steve, uh, they seem to have turned a blind eye to the, re the realities of what happened. Chris, it is so horrible, it's just... Things are coming out now, recordings, actual recordings captured by Israel, where the women who are being raped are asking the people who are raping them to kill them. They said, you're going to do it anyway. I can't take it anymore. Screaming and yelling. Mm. The most despicable, horrible things, which is normal under the radical Islamic group called Hamas. That's right. Well, Steve, uh, so we've had some interesting things. All of our all of our um, uh, news articles are hyperlinked 
to our uh, to our show notes so that you can go read them for yourself and see for yourself. Uh, Before you finish, Chris, I, I'm going to make a, a request to our seven listeners. Go on the internet and read the Hamas Covenant. Yes. Read the Hamas Covenant. And then tell me how anybody would even want to negotiate with a group that is saying we want to obliterate the Jewish people. Obliterate them. Yes. And we want to make uh, Palestine... Jew free. That's part of their covenant. They even condemn any group, any group to their, according to them, to their shame. Any of their neighbors who make an agreement with them, they call it null and void in their mind. They are nothing but conspirators as far as they're concerned. How, that's why all these requests, including from our own country, that, you know, once this is over, we'll be able to negotiate. Yeah. With, I, I, you're out of your mind. These yep. people do not recognize in any way. They don't want to recognize. They are not interested in talk. That is a Western thinking thing. Chris, you've said that. It has to get through our thick skulls. You don't negotiate with people like this. That's right. And I'm. I do get nervous that our administration that we have now, the Biden administration, is starting to play into the hands of what's going on with Hamas and the Palestinians. You know, even recently I saw that the Blinken and uh, Vice President Kamala Harris have come out and laid these the groundwork for what will happen after the war. We do not want to see Israel in that area. We do not want a minimization of of uh, uh, of of land. We don't want is we want Israel to leave right away. And I think isn't that nice, you know, that you're telling them what to do? These people have been, like, I think I read 11,000 rockets have been launched into Israel since October 7th, and you're going to tell them you have to leave now. Oh, you know, it's amazing to me. Who who condemned us when we were going into Iraq and Afghanistan? Everybody was, you know, you have to go defeat this enemy, you know, this ideology. You know, Israel has to defeat an ideology, too, and what? They get bupkis. They get told, go home now. Exactly. Exactly. It's important. I think I think reading the Hamas covenant is a very important thing for us to understand what Israel is faced against. All right, Steve. Well, we do have our Yiddish word of the day as we're wrapping up our Jew and Gentile podcast. Episode number 117, Steve. Can you believe that? 117. 117. And I used to hear this all the time from my mother That's to me. <laughs> Don't be such a nudnik. Don't be a nudnik. Nudnik is our Yiddish word a of the day. Nudnik. A nudnik is somebody who is a pain in the tush. Annoying. A pest. A pest. That's right. Well, that's what we want to talk about here because you know what? All these people that are outside protesting against Michael Solomonov and all the anti it's a bunch of Don't nudniks. Don't be a nudnik. Don't Go be a home. <laughs> So nudnik is our Yiddish word of the day. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for being a part of the Jew and Gentile podcast. Hey, just a fresh reminder. Be sure to go to foiequip.org, and there you can sign up for our online classes. First, you can pray for Israel on December 7th. Be there, 7.30 p.m. We'll be praying for the Jewish people this Thursday. Finally, uh, our final class of the year, December 14th, I'll be teaching on the significance of Bethlehem. Hey, Bethlehem was so important, the fact that Jesus was born there. You got to come here. Why? So we'll see you all. Hey, thanks for being with us. Be praying for Israel and the Jewish people. Steve, great to have you back. Great to be back. I'll bring my dreidel next week. All right. We'll see you all next week.